Here we go, April the 19th, 2015, lecture discussion number 194, I'm sorry, number 194 on the Book of Romans. For you folks on the internet, I want to bring up Bill the Fast and have him tell his sheep story. So Bill, come on up and give that uh, the symbolism of the Bill, Bill the Fast sheep story. Passage and usually he calls us sheep. Well, I've had some experience with sheep a little bit. Thank goodness it wasn't too much. But here's what you can expect if you're a sheep. On one end you have dingleberries, and on the other end you have mucus, and in between in the wool, quite often you find maggots. And I have a story about a sheep, and it was from a long time ago, because I think I was about 16 or 17. And uh, a friend of mine and I were hiking in the mountains around where I lived, and we come upon a sheep that was in a blackberry patch. And he'd been there a while, because he'd thrashed around and torn up the ground and a few things. And we decided we felt sorry for him because he wasn't going to get out of there. If you've ever been around blackberries, you can go in, but you don't get out unless you have some equipment to help you. Anyhow, we took out our pocket knives and started cutting this sheep out of the blackberries. And uh, it took us probably, I don't know, somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour and a half to get him cut out of there and get the brambles cut out of his wool. And no sooner had we got him loose and sent him on his way than uh, he'd run around on a little hill that was above the brambles, jumped right back off into the brambles again. And I think that's a pretty good example of the kind of things we do. No matter how far we go or what we learn, we tend to get ourselves right back in the brambles. So... Thank you. That's the story that Steve wanted to be on. Okay, well, now you turn this mic off, Terry. Good for you. Thanks, Bill. And I want the Internet folks to focus on a couple of things. Uh, one of those things, of course, is the part about mucus, maggots, and dingleberries. Because if anything describes the church today, that's it. Mucus, briar, or briar bushes, mucus, maggots, and dingleberries. We can't stay out of simple traps. We charge into them. And no greater place is the church trapped today than on the deity of Christ and the goodness of God, which is the same thing, the goodness of God, the goodness of Christ. And uh, I'll be bringing that up as uh, the weeks go along. So every time now you hear me reference uh, the sheep story, you'll know what I'm talking about. Start searching yourself for maggots and wipe your faces, because that's how we're described, and appropriately so. Okay, so here we are again, April 19, 2015, lecture discussion number 194, to repeat all of that on the book of Romans. And I intend every week to start doing something different than what I'm doing now, because what's happening on uh, the geopolitical front is astonishing. And there's more things to watch and more things to know and more things to warn our families about as we witness the unfolding of the sign that is the nation of Israel. Israel is a sign, as you know, and we are watching that sign fruit and blossom in our lifetime. You may know. If you don't, I'll help you today. The Iranian naval forces are moving towards Yemen just exactly as we thought they would. The Iranians seem to be intending to uh, resupply the Shia Houthis. Those are the rebels that have seized control of the port of Aden in Yemen, the southernmost port. And the Saudis have responded to the Shia Houthi rebels, and they have their ships deployed attempting to enforce a blockade. They're going to try to starve the Houthis of ammunition, food supplies. So munitions and, uh, uh, and whatever military hardware that they can get, they're attempting to allow them, or attempting to circumvent their, their abilities to acquire more supplies. As you know, if you can't supply your army, your army or your, your battalion or whatever forces you have, uh, that is going to be problematic. So the, 
the Iranians have responded to that. And the US, United States Navy is in that region as well. They're in the area. So, what do we have? We have the Saudi Arabian Air Force right now controlling the Yemeni airspace. And the Iranians have now moved its army, or I'm sorry, its navy, and they're daring the United States to stop them. They're certain that the United States is not going to stop them. Why do they think that? Remember, Iran is Shia or Shiite. Saudi Arabia is Sunni. This has been going on for a thousand years or better, right? Expect them to fire upon each other at some point. Escalation is just merely a matter of time. Now, as an aside, Japan gets most of its energy from the Middle East. I don't know how much, 75%, maybe 80%. All, and Japan is very dependent on Middle East oil. China, their economy also relies heavily on Middle East exports. Therefore, the port of Aden is a critical strategic military asset. If Iran controls the Arabian Sea, what's going to happen very quickly to the Japanese and the Chinese economy? And by the way, Iran is a proxy for who? Russia. So we're going to see tremendous economic distress if the Iranians control the Arabian Sea of the Port of Aden. Global markets are fragile, so be watching the military movements of the Saudi Arabians and the Iranians. In addition to that, that's on the news, that's yesterday, maybe today as well. ISIS, the Islamic State forces, they're poised to capture, capture, I'm sorry, Ramadi in the Anbar province. If they succeed in capturing Ramadi, they will control central Iraq and central Syria. And they'll have the roads and the communication systems, and that'll allow them the ability to declare the Islamic State as a ruler of Anbar with territorial control into Syria. So what have they become if they're able to do this? They become a country. We have an Islamic State country with borders. So they're trying everything they can to get to Ramadi. Essentially, they're, going, they're attempting to establish a new country. And I believe then that this will cause, as I predicted a few weeks ago, and I'm not that smart. Listen, if I can think of this stuff, you can think of it, and so is somebody else. We're up here in Alaska, right? What do we know? But I told you, didn't I, that there is no Iraq in the Bible. Iraq is a European contrived experiment. And it's going to end if the Islamic State can control central Iraq and central Syria and have the ability with that road system to transport troops and munitions. Now, of course, the U.S. Air Force is there trying to pick those people off. But in any event, if they're able to do that, they have a country. They'll establish a capital and they'll begin to branch out from there. So Iraq will end completely collapse. It'll send the entire region into full-scale chaos. So I now will have, I will have all-out war in Yemen, all-out war in Iraq. I will have the nation of Iraq, the government of Iraq that's just been propped up by Iran, the United States. Anyway, it completely disintegrates. And now we have the Russian tactical response. Here come the Russians. Putin controls Iran, as I said. Putin is now established in Crimea and eastern Ukraine. That is not an accident. The Iran- Don't think the Iranian Navy is moving towards the port of Aden with the ability to choke off the oil exports to Russia, I'm sorry, to China and Japan without the Russians knowing about it. That Iranian military is not going to move unless, the, unless Putin tells them to move. He's already taken eastern Ukraine. He has Crimea. He has the ports now. He's lurking. Russia is lurking over the Middle East. What passage in the Bible is that? Russia has noticed the withdrawal of the United States deterrence. In fact, Russia has probably been much aware that we were going to withdraw. Remember that famous statement our president said to Medvedev. 
I can't do it right now. And everyone has wondered what it was that he was going to do. Well, he's withdrawn the United States deterrence from the Middle East. There's a vacuum there. And Putin immediately seizes eastern Ukraine and the Crimea. Now he has launching capability into the Middle East in an, in an instant. And the Iranian Navy, again, going after the Arabian Sea. Practicing sinking U.S. carriers, right? You saw that, I hope. This situation is a mess. And a little tiny event, a small little spark, could launch major militaries into motion. Something else that's happening. Anna asks me all the time, uh, is there anything happening today that I need to know about? And all I can do is say, yeah, every day. It's amazing what's happening. Perhaps you read this. The world's central banks are reacting to the worsening world economic conditions. And they're continuing to reduce interest rates. We have some people in this, uh, Catherine and is one that are very, very well aware of the banking industry, and they understand it extremely uh, well. So they're reducing interest rates. So what's the obvious question? We have economic stagnation, essentially. The world economy is, is perilously uh, paralyzed. There is no job creation. Very little manufacturing is suffering. So they're reducing interest rates in order to pump uh, energy into the economics of the world. So what's the obvious question? If I've reduced it so far to what? What's the current interest rate? Uh, uh, Catherine, what is it right now? It's close to zero. Can I go below zero? So this is where math is. I, yes, I can go below zero. Absolutely I can. And the banks are now saying, the central banks are saying, Let's decrease the interest rate into negative numbers. Say minus two percent, two and a half percent. I'll just throw that all right. Two and a half percent. I'll give that to you. Could be, they really believe it or not, they want to go much lower than that. What are the implications if I reduce the interest rates into negative numbers? What happens? In theory, they can do it, of course. Those of you with mortgages, you can immediately see the advantage of a negative two and a half percent mortgage, can't you? They are serious as they can be. They can stimulate the economy. There's something called the ELB, the bound, if you will, on interest rate, the, uh, the limit of interest rates, the limit bound. They don't go below zero because why? Do you know why? The problem is the existence of cash. Cash is a bearer instrument. The bearer of cash utilizes it to acquire goods and services, and cash has a zero nominal rate. That may not mean anything to you, but let's put it another way. Who in his right or her right mind would deposit money into a bank that is providing an interest rate of negative 2.5%? What are they doing to your money if you put it in there? They're, they're absorbing it. That's right. They're cannibalizing it. So nobody's going to put their money in a bank that's producing. Now, this would really stimulate the economy. Imagine what that would do to the real estate market if I had negative 5% loans. Yeah, people qualifying that didn't have jobs, right? Oh, we've tried that before. Never mind. That was a joke. I'm glad you laughed. But imagine if I had negative 5%, I would stimulate the economy tremendously. Capital would be go everywhere. Companies might invest at negative 5% interest. they certainly borrow, wouldn't they? And that's what they're considering. But cash is in the way. Who in his right mind would go deposit into a bank that is cannibalizing your account at negative 5% per annum? So what would you do with your cash? Would you leave it in the bank? If, it's, if there, No, you would not. You should see, Catherine, those of you on the internet. Those of you here, I should film the audience sometime. It's hilarious. But you would put it in a trunk in the attic, or you'd put it in the mattress where it isn't uh, confiscated. And I recognize some people would not because of the FDIC insurance. They would absorb the confiscation rate in order to make sure there was some kind of insurance where if you put it in your attic and your, your house catches fire, um, you'll have to have very good documentation that that money was in there. Pardon me? Or, or Catherine points out, get any liquid uh, mineral. 
gold, silver, platinum. And that's what people will do, anything that's liquid. I suggest that you buy um, cases of MREs, or goats and chickens maybe, ammunition. Uh, you know what prison currency is, of course, it's cigarettes and little bottles of air, aircraft, airplane uh, alcohol, right? But negative interest incentivizes people to hold on to the cash. And the point is to avoid those same negative rates by withdrawing from banks. And banks don't like that, right? It's bad for business if people start taking their cash and putting it into commodities, specifically gold and silver, precious metals. That's bad for the banking business. So what can the banking bi- The banks want to go below zero, but they can't because of the cash element or the cash uh, uh that's in the economy. So what's the solution? Yeah, Dana hit on it immediately. Well, now, quite unsurprisingly, the banks would see great advantages to the abolition of all currency. Where's that in the Bible? You might see in your lifetime total war in the, in the Middle East and the abolition of currency. This is not something they're just kicking around. This is something that they would love to do. The banks would see great advantages to the abolition of all cash. The Federal Reserve could then reduce interest rates more aggressively. For example, they they could go to minus 10% easily if currency... It's a weapon to stimulate the economy, they would say. Hooray for the Fed. Huzzah whoopee. There's that little teeny, teensy side effect of negative 10% interest confiscating your savings account. But how does that hurt the central bank if it is negative 10 It doesn't hurt them at all. In fact, it's an asset to them, isn't it? Who has cash in our society now? The elderly, that's me. The poor, that's also me. They would be devastated. But digital economies are much easier to control, aren't they? Digital uh, transfers are happening now. The The Federal Reserve is buying stocks and bonds not with any hard currency, not with any physical currency. They're doing it digitally. And you know the government does love them some control, don't they? That's the definition of government. So this week, with the world economy approaching a point of crisis, it's looming. It's right on the horizon. We can see it from here. The economists are publicly advocating for the elimination of material currency. Look it up. It's in every major economic magazine or publication you can find. And they think that this will save the world's economy. Well, they're kind of right about that. They'll make it very easy to control. Think about that. Negative nominal rates, the savior of the world. And what what should we call this if it happens in your lifetime? We should name this negative nominal rate stimulation and this abolition of material currency. What should we call it? It's a government intrusion monstrosity. How about we call it... uh, Economic Babylon, what do you say? Just an idea. And remember last week I brought up Ray Kurzweil, whom our piano is named for. Ray Kurzweil, if you remember, his focus now in his life is defeating death. Kurzweil, he's just one of many of these uh, internet billionaires and millionaires, electronic billionaires that are pursue, they're taking their resources and they're pursuing the medical defeat of the aging process, the death generator, the mortogenic factor. The Internet guys, the billionaires, they're obsessed with overcoming their impending mortality. So put it all together. Chaos in the Middle East. Russia poised to grasp the oil production, thereby controlling the natural gas supply to Europe. And what else? He's now controlling the uh, crude oil exports to China and Japan. How powerful has he become? What has he done to his immediate threat of China economically? Those are two Goliath economies, Japan and China. 
and they are dependent now on Russia staying out of the Middle East. Do you think Putin knows that? So I've got chaos in the Middle East, Russia poised. And again, how powerful would he be? The United States, uh, our State Department is in disarray. It looks like it's run by college freshmen. I can't even stand to watch these kids talk. These are the spokespeople for our government. Naive, incoherent, weak, foolish. That'll get me some mail. Just as an aside, Putin and Russia have no reason to expect resistance from the United States. Only Israel and Egypt could mount a resolute counter to a Russian incursion. And would they do it? Imagine if the Middle East descends into all-out engagement. The Russian military now, because of their positions in eastern Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula, they could quickly mobilize and sweep through eastern Turkey, and now they're into Iraq, and they've got it. ISIS is so dumb, they think they're going to get Iraq, where the Russians right there. And the Iranians would love the Russians to come in because the Iranians and the Russians are simpatico. They're compatriots. And the ISIS Islamic State, those people are Sunni. As you know, as I said a few minutes ago in the pregame, the Russians are supplying Iran with anti-aircraft missile batteries. So Iran is getting, and the United States is going, is doing nothing. In fact, is enabling that. So the Russian military could now very quickly sweep through Turkey into Iraq, especially if the Kurdish Assyrians begin to assert themselves. And so we could see all of that happen in two or three days. I mean, it's certainly possible. So let me recap, uh, recap the recap. Anti-aging, defeating the curse of death. One world digital currency, no cash anywhere, total control in some kind of electronic system operated by the governments. Russia preemptively occupying, moving into Iraq, the possibility establishing Iran as the power in the Middle East. Essentially, Russia now is in authority of the entire region. China's economy is threatened horribly. So is Japan's, held hostage. And therefore, who owns the debt of this country? Oh, how about that? China and Japan. So what what has Putin thought of? If I can think of it, and you can think of it, can he think of it? Of course he can. This reminds me of what my dad used to speak about, his experience in the 1930s, just prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, as Hitler was sweeping across Europe, we're seeing Putin and the Russian military poised to take out the economies of the United States, China, and Japan by taking Iraq. And the only one that could stop them is this fascinating new... Uh, allied group, Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, the Kurds, fighting on the same side for the first time in history, really, just as Isaiah 19 said it would. Who could possibly predict all of this? Well, Ezekiel did, got it absolutely perfect. So did Isaiah. So I want you to keep watching and searching for these things. They are the, are the elements of the end of the age of the Gentiles. And when it ends, things are going to be really bad. The old adage that of uh, Chronister's uh, motto, it's going to get worse, you know, before it gets worse. Okay. And all of that is why we are currently at 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11, and 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 58, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 18. That's why we're there. Because we have to pay attention to what's going on in the world because we're trying to ask the key questions or answer the key questions of the taking of the side. I'm sorry, the, the sign of the taking of the bride. Remember... That we have two signs. 
We have the sign of the nation of Israel, or if you will, the wife, and we have the sign of the bride, if you will, the betrothed. So, those two signs, if you want to say church here, you can. The taking of the church, the taking of the bride, perfectly appropriate. And that's where we left off last week, beginning to ask the the fundamental questions of the taking of the bride, the sign of the taking of the bride. And as you know, that is not the when. Everybody wants to focus on when, and I'm telling you that's not the right way to approach it. Focus on why. Why does God take the bride, and how does he take it? If you do that, you're going to find that the win that you're so concerned about, that all the movies and all the books are concerned about, nobody is selling books on why he takes the bride and how he takes the bride very much. They're all focused on when he takes the bride. And I understand the preoccupation with when with respect to the taking of the bride, but if you ask why, in my opinion, it's far, far more valuable for you to know, for us to know. Again, what are the purposes? What's God's purpose? What's God's reasons for taking the bride of Christ out? He's removing the bride of Christ from the world. Again, don't ask when. Ask why and how. How does he take the bride? And then ask, once he takes the bride out, what's left? What's the aftermath of that? Who sees the bride gone or going? Does anybody see the bride leaving? Does anybody hear the bride leaving? It's a better question. Who knows the bride has left, been taken by the bridegroom? Who knows it? What changes are now on the earth once the bride is gone? Can I take a bride out of the earth in the condition that it's all probably in? Total chaos and war, economic collapse. Can I take the bride out and not affect the world? If I took the Christians out of the U.S. military, would that affect the U.S. military? Absolutely it would. So who sees it? Who knows about it? What changes are on the earth? With the taking of the bride, the world is going to change. But how much does it change? You really get a perspective of that when you just add the populations of India and China. Probably at at this point we're approaching 4 billion just between those two countries. And the United States has what? 300 million? How many Christians do you think that is? 50 million? I don't We have no idea how many cities in China are bigger than the New York metropolitan area. Can't even count them. We don't know how big Calcutta is. Millions and millions of people in those two countries, uh, hundreds of millions, billions there, were mathematically not significant, the church in the United States. In fact, the uh, church in China outnumbers the church in the United States. It's not even close. So stop focusing on who so much and when so much, but why and how. Jesus Christ clearly intends to take his bride out, and he knows, because he's omnipotent God, omniscient God, that that's going to change the world. And we need to know why he does it and what that change, that resulting change is. So again, instead of focusing on ourselves, let's start considering the consequence. And I submit by doing that, we will be able to correctly determine the when. So you'll be able to answer when just by understanding why and how. And, and uh, th- that, uh, that so many people direct their entire attention to the win, and uh, I guess it's economically more viable than the why and the how. Okay, back we go now to 1 Corinthians 15. Let's do that. And we'll throw a few things on the board here. I went really fast. So far, because I wanted to make sure I didn't use up all my time. Now, I'm seeing the clock, and I'm way ahead of schedule, so I can slow down quite a bit now. So we will. 1 Corinthians 15:50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And then this incredible word that you always have to know when this is in the Bible, you've got to know something is about to happen that I've got to pay attention to. So let's repeat it again. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. So how hard is it going to get now? It's going to get really hard. When Paul says it's a mystery, if it's a mystery to Paul, I absolutely guarantee you it's a mystery to us. I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's a mystery. We're not all going to die physically. But we shall all be changed. You're not going to die, some of you. But all of us are going to be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. So i got two groups, don't I? The resurrected group and the changed group. We'll get into that in a minute. For this corruptible must put on, must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let me give you Chronister's paraphrase today. Through, therefore, my beloved brethren, get out of the briar bush, the blackberry briar. I know you got mucus and maggots and dingleberries, but quit jumping back into the blackberry bushes and getting stuck. And we got to cut you out over and over again, but we can't stop you. As soon as we cut you out, you go right back in. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Know your doctrine. Know who Christ really is. Know that he's always good. Omnibenevolent. Can't be anything but good have no position that ever insinuates in any way that he's not God or not good. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Okay, so here in 1550 through 58 of 1 Corinthians, we have some interesting details concerning the change that occurs to the bodies of those who are in the bride of Christ. Um, Those believers that are said to be in Christ. That's in Thessalonians. As you know, First Thessalonians, and my handwriting isn't very good. I think it's 4.16. Let me double check. I wrote it down. 4.16. In Christ. The dead in Christ will rise first, it says, in First Thessalonians 4.16. So we have to define what in Christ means. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 reveals the order. First, it says, the dead in Christ are resurrected. It's the first thing that happens. And again, stop thinking about when is it going to happen. Start asking, why is he doing it? Why this order? Why are the dead in Christ raised first? Doesn't have to do it that way, does he? Yes, he does, because he's omniscient God. So, that was a trick question. But let's grant the hypothesis that it could have been the reverse. That the those of us who are alive, we go first and the dead go second. It's not how he did it. The dead are going to go first. The dead in Christ. What does that mean? First, the dead in Christ are resurrected, and second, those who are alive that are remaining are caught up, are taken, the sign of the taking of the bride, all of this together, and they meet Christ in the air. 
We all are in the air, as opposed to where? On the earth. So this is an event that happens in the air. Ask the obvious question, why? Why doesn't he come to earth? He doesn't. There's very good reasons. So we're going to meet Christ in the air, the dead first. Those of us that are alive, that are remaining, are caught up, taken to meet Christ in the air. And thus this differentiation is established. Those who are resurrected, the dead, and those who are taken while still alive. Two groups. Obvious question, again, why this order? Why this distinction? Some commentators refer to this, this as resurrection and translation. So the live ones are translated and the dead are resurrected, as most of you know. This is also the issue of those preceding in Christ and those subsequent to in Christ. I have a group of people. Here's how it goes. Ah, start racing for you. I have an in Christ group. I have a before an in Christ group. And I have an after. Who's the before in Christ? That would be the Old Testament saints. Who's the after the in Christ group is gone? That's the tribulational saints, or those who are saved after the taking of the bride, right? So I have preceding and subsequent. Now, but back to First uh, Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Flesh and blood cannot, it says, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Why not? There's a problem. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Because why? It's sinful. So we have a problem. Think of it this way. Can't drive your car across the bridge. Nothing wrong with the bridge. Some problem with your car. So we got to fix fix it. We got to corruption cannot inherit incorruption. We got a rust bucket. We got to fix it. And obviously we need a solution. And so here's the solution. First, the problem is given that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit the incorruption. That's the problem. Behold, here's the solution. It's a mystery. Mystery number six of the eleven mysteries. We shall not all sleep. There's the solution is now coming. But we shall all be changed. I can't let you go. You can't get in. We can't get in uh, with corruption. We have to be changed. And in a moment, in a sudden flash, at the last trumpet, the dead in Christ will be resurrected incorruptible, and those who remain alive will be changed. Because mortal must put on immortality. Our bodies that die must become bodies that cannot die. Does that make sense? Stay with me. In order to inherit the kingdom of God. So he's got to change this dying body that we have into a body that cannot die. We already have a soul that does not die. Immortality of the soul. Continuity of the soul. But our bodies are dying. And that cannot be. So the body has to be changed to a body that won't die. Now what is this last trumpet? I haven't seen all the movies. I can't watch the movies. I know that what they say is is usually silly. What is this last trumpet? Who is Paul writing to here? He's writing to the Corinthians. Who are the Corinthians? People that live in Corinth. They're kind of they have some real problems. These folks, by the way, but they're saved nonetheless. We should be what? Grateful. The standard is really low for salvation. That's good news for us. Point is, is that the Corinthians knew what the last trumpet was. It's obvious from the context that they knew. So therefore, the last trumpet cannot be where in the Bible? In the book of Revelation. Why not? Hasn't been written yet. So if you have a last trumpet coming out of the book of Revelation and you're inserting it here into Corinthians and Thessalonians, big wampum problems. Very difficult to uh, defend that. 
So the since the book of Revelation had not been written, it cannot be, the trumpets, the seven trumpets in Revelation cannot be uh, this trumpet. One of those tribulational seven trumpets will not be, you'll not be able to beat it in here with a hammer. It is logical that the same trumpet of 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the trumpet of God, is the same one as this trumpet here in Corinthians. And the Corinthians would have been very familiar with that trumpet because they would know about what? They would know about the feast day of trumpets. There's a feast day of trumpets. By now you know that that would be my favorite feast day. And what happens in that feast day is they play trumpets. And the last trumpet of that feast day is a long, very loud trumpet blast. The great trumpet that concludes all the other trumpet sounds. So I'm, I'm submitting to you that this trumpet is that trumpet from, from the feast day celebration. So, okay, now let's make our list. What have we got so far? So far, I have resurrected dead. Dead, and they go first. I have remainders. I hope to be a remainder. My whole life I have said my, my uh, retirement system is to be a remainder. The remainders, they go second. Okay. And so there, I have resurrected dead and I have changed remainders, or translated if you wish. And all of those, only the ones that are in Christ, are taken. When did in Christ start in the Bible? Second chapter of Acts. And they're in the air. And they're there to meet, all of us are in the air, and we're there to meet the bridegroom. And the bridegroom is who? Who's the bridegroom that has come? Yes, good answer. God. When I say Jesus Christ, it's the same thing. And then there is a great trumpet. I thought about bringing my trumpet today just to demonstrate how loud I can make that thing go off. My joke, as you know, is when God wants your attention, he does not use an electric guitar. It's not loud enough. He uses a trumpet. And there's also, if you compare Thessalonians 4.16, there's a shout. So we have the immediate question, how loud's that trumpet? How loud's that shout? Who's playing the trumpet? That's kind of cool to know. What was said in the shout? Right? Well, let's go ahead and and deal with that really fast. Let's see if we can answer that. What do you think was shouted? Should be a good place to put this in while I'm thinking about it. There is a shout and a loud trumpet. What do you think he says? Let's go to maybe uh, Revelation 4.1. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will allow you things which must, I, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately John is gone. How about John 11? 43, maybe that might be what he shouts. That's where he's calling out Lazarus. Now, when he had said these things, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. How loud did he shout it? 
And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. It is interesting, and as a side note, that uh, Revelation, I'll put it on the board, uh, 4.1, the church is, the whole book of Revelation is all about the church, all the way to Revelation 4.1. It's completely about the church. The seven churches, one through three, church, 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 nothing but church, church, church. It's all we're talking about in Revelation, the church, the bride, the bride, the bride, the bride, the bride. After Revelation 4.1, the come here, church is not spoken of again until Revelation 19. Now, I know that's the evidence of silence, but that's powerful evidence. Nothing but church all the way to there. And then after that, it's all Israel. Powerful evidence of what? Of the sign of the taking of the bride. Again, the, the come here is in the air, not on the earth. That's important to remember. Because there's going to be a time when he comes to the earth. So obviously this is differentiated from that time. Air and earth are not the same. Now, if you were here last week, I began to introduce the Second Corinthians 5 questions. Um, don't have time to, to go back over it again. But if you were here, you will remember that Second Corinthians 5, we have this image given of our bodies. And our bodies is called a, a, there all these different symbols. The, a tent clothing, a building, a habitation. It also says there that our bodies dissolve. And I made the point that mine's dissolving simultaneously while I'm talking to you. You can see it happening before your eyes. It's exponential. The dissolving process is more apparent. Lori and I were talking this morning, sitting in our couch looking out the window. As we feed the squirrel. Now, we feed the squirrel because we're feeding the birds, and the squirrel eats what the birds are fed, and so uh, it just happens to be the way it is. And um, we're watching the squirrel. And, th- and after a while, we started to like the squirrel better than the birds. So, and different squirrels have come and gone. The problem with feeding the squirrel is what? That's right. He gets into the neighbor's house. I know better than to not. <laughs> I'm going to feed a squirrel. The last thing I'm going to do is make sure, or the first thing I'm going to do is make sure that my house is not accessible. And sorry about his house. It's a cute squirrel. And he's our friend now. Point is, is we're sitting in front watching the squirrel and the birds, which we like to do because we're dissolving. And we recognize that our kids are 30. Now that means nothing to you guys, but to us that's catastrophic. (laughs) And we remembered Barb and Earl, Lori's parents, when uh, we saw them at our age. They were younger than us and we thought, wow, it's terrible to be them. And now here I am, worse than them. And it isn't, it isn't fun. Those of us, those of you who think, wow, I can't wait to get old. No. Wait. Anyway, the point of it is, is that my body, your body is dissolving. And, and the Bible says that. And now these, these issues come up in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11 as well building question, the groaning, the yearning, the dissolving. And so we asked essentially the exactness, the specifics of the body resurrection, the full nature of this immortality, of this immortal body that we're going to be given. So he's going to take this body, the dead ones he's going to resurrect first, then he's going to take the remainders, those of us who remain, he's going to pull us up, we're going, to, we're going to obey that command to come here, that shout, and he's going to change us, and, uh, and it's going to be done in a flash, a flash of the eye. Some people will tell you that that is a recognition reference. I don't know. I know it's extremely fast. 
Thus, the flurry of possibilities or the turbulence, mostly turbulence is what it is, but nonetheless things that we should uh, pay attention to that require attention. First and foremost, we cannot determine what's going to happen, the specificity, the specifics of the resurrection. We cannot figure out what's going to happen by uh, gaining or gleaning information from God's resurrection. If you start looking at Christ's resurrection and saying, okay, that's how I'm going to figure out how my resurrection's going to go, that's how my body's going to look, or my body's going to function, that is fraught with difficulty. That's a commonly attempted uh, technique, but it isn't uh, wise to do so. Christ is God. He had a non-corrupted, non-dead sinless, perfect body that could not be killed and did not decay and was not subject to time, not the same as us. And often I hear illiterate exclamations made by otherwise knowledgeable lecturers. They say things like this, Christ could walk through walls after he was resurrected. That's me, on the, you guys on the internet, hitting myself in the forehead. Of course he could walk through walls. He's God. He could walk on water before he resurrected himself. Okay? He walked through people, for goodness sakes. He's God. He made this physical reality. He controls all of it. He is not subordinated to it ever. Duh. Make no statement like, Woo, we're going to be able to walk through walls after we're resurrected. No, I don't think you will. If that's your plan, I'm gonna, I'll be over here with a door company. Okay? You go with, I don't, I'm gonna walk through walls idea. He's God, you're not. Ever. My point is, is we can't determine the state of our immortal physical bodies by evaluating God's. The, it just, you just can't stop it. Having said that, we still can look at it and, and be fascinated by it. And see what we can, what the characteristics are. First, how recognizable was Christ? Well, lots of people saw him, Emmaus Road, right? Did they know who he was? Had no idea. It wasn't until he's gone. How did he leave? We'll study Emmaus next week. But how did he get leave them? He's walking along with them, explaining the mysteries of Scripture. And they were stunned. And they didn't know it was him. And then he left. And then they what? And they knew. So obviously the leaving got their attention. That must be Christ. We can tell by how he left. But we know his voice was recognizable because Mary comes up to him in John 20:16, and as soon as he he says Mary, she knows it's him. She recognized his voice. Peter is in a boat, right? John 21, 6 through 7. He hears him shout out. Peter knows it's Christ. So voices are recognizable. Isn't that interesting? But remember. Christ has a sinless body. His voice isn't like my voice. I have a dissolving voice. He did not. He maintained some of his physical features, didn't he? Asked Thomas. John 20, 26 through 29. He ate food. Luke 24, 42. At least he ate the honeycomb. There's fish and there's honeycomb doesn't say he ate both. You can infer that if you wish. But what would happen to the fish if he ate the fish? I always wanted to know that. If he touched the fish, what would happen to the fish? What about the honeycomb? His body also could be grasped. Thomas grabs him. So that is a physical body. Obviously a physical body and not an image or a spirit. Okay, so we've got that. But again, that's God's body, not necessarily ours. Now, from last Sunday, okay, not ours. 
I shouldn't say not necessarily. From last Sunday, we need to know the difference between an immortal body, the changed body, of the saved. Because we have the saved body, right? That's these guys, resurrected dead in Christ. That's saved people, and they have a saved body that is given to them that is changed in an instant. Okay? We also have resurrected unsaved. Would we use the term resurrection if the body wasn't involved? No, we wouldn't, because you don't resurrect a soul. It's completely unnecessary. Souls don't need resurrected. So if we have a resurrected lost person, if there's a resurrected of the dead that are unsaved, that that's got to be their bodies. So I have an unsaved body. What's the obvious question now? What's the difference in the two bodies? This body has got to be, the saved body, is an immortal, uncorrupted, never-can-die body. What's this one? What's the difference? The body of the lost. If you want to, you can think of it this way. This is a cleaned body, or a cleansed body, or a body that is uh, under blood. If you want to think of blood poured all over it, that's perfectly appropriate. We'll get to that in a minute. But this is a clean one. And this is an unclean body. How do they look? What do they look like? The glorious body and the inglorious body. I think it's obvious that the changing process is inseparable from the blood of Christ. Are you patting your head for a reason? Okay. I'll hurry. So to repeat the question from last week, how much blood is needed to change this body that is resurrected from the dead in Christ? How much blood is needed to cleanse this body of the remaining? How long does it take? Obviously, it doesn't take very long. How much of the remaining alive body is cleaned? That seems like a simple question. The answer would be all of it. How much of the of the how much of our body that goes up in the air if we're remaining alive? How dirty is it? It's totally dirty. It's got to be completely clean. So, how much blood does that take? By the way, how powerful is the blood of God? How much of the dissolved body? Here's the key question from last week. How much of the dissolved body is resurrected? It's dissolved. Think Hiroshima, if you will. Think eaten by fish. Think burned. Cremated. Scattered. Here's an idea. You've been cremated. And as you should know, the, the Orthodox Jews do not accept cremation. They think it's pagan. You should know that. You've been cremated, and you're in an urn, and somebody... Throws your urn in the dumpster, and your body, your dissolved body is scattered. Are you in trouble? Yeah, can God find you? Of course he can find you. What, are we idiots? How much, though, does God need of your body? And this is the DNA question or the serial number of the car question, right? How much of the old body uh, is necessary? And, and again, God can find all of the dissolved bodies, duh. Does he then resurrect them and clean them? So is the process find the dead ones, resurrect the dead ones, uh, reestablish the dead ones, and then clean the dead one. Soak it in blood, if you will. And the remainders are fine, are the remainders, because can he find those of us who are in Christ? There's lots of us. Will he miss any? No. He'll find us all. So he's really good at finding. Um, and so uh, now does he take us up? Yes, he does. And then he cleans us. So is it the same process? Just different stages of it. Remember, God builded Eve from bone and blood and flesh from Adam. He did not make her from dust. That's important to know. Not from dust. But we dissolve into dust. 
to dust we return, right? So what are the implications of that? Why does God resurrect our bodies uh, and our remaining alive bodies? Why does he resurrect our dissolved bodies and our remaining alive bodies even in the first place? That's the key question. He's going to resurrect our bodies. Why? What's the answer? Why would he do it? Huh? What's that? Yeah, he's going to put our soul back in it, but why? What's that? Huh? Well, yeah, we are a temple, but that is still, I'm still fighting for why. He's got a reason. He's going, okay, I got a dissolved body, I gotta go find it, there it is, I gotta pull it all back together, piece of cake, gotta soak it in blood, great, I gotta put the soul in it, pam, there we go. Why? So we can look like him? So that we can be seen? Aha! So that we can hang out, have buffets, we eat and honeycomb, Honeycomb buffet. Obviously, we're going to need the body. We need the body. 